Welcome and thank you for tuning in with Talking Human Rights. My name is Lens van Kessel and I'll be your host today. As you know, on this podcast, I'll be talking to all kinds of academics in the field. And let me tell you, we have an incredibly exciting episode for you today. But before we jump into the topic, I have a question for our guests. So, Tina, why do human rights matter to you and how did you become interested in human rights law? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Lens, for, for first of all, for the invite and for asking me this. It's, uh, you know, a very personal matter. Um, when I was young and I had to decide, uh, I thought that, you know, the my way of living in this society and support the uh, all things that matter to me, like democracy, like, you know, um, unity in the world was law. So that's how I was interested in human rights law. And that's why I also chose to, to, to study law. That's, that's a beautiful answer. Thank you. Um, and can you introduce yourself for the listeners? Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm an assistant professor in international law and human rights law in uh, the Utrecht University um, with the Netherlands Institute of Human Rights. Uh, that we have the, also the pleasure that you are the student assistant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, I'm also vice chair of the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination right now. I am Greek. I studied first in Athens, then in Strasbourg uh, and Paris and uh, I worked many years before joining fully the university. I worked many years uh, in the human rights field, uh, first um, with, uh, you know, both as a researcher, but also as a human rights officer at the National Commission for Human Rights in Greece and UNHCR, um, mostly the last uh, 10 years against racism. That's amazing. Uh, and it's, it's quite a career you're having. Uh, it must be very inspiring for our listeners as well. So thank you. Thank you. This is Tina Stavrinaki. Am I saying that right? Tina Stavrinaki. That's great. <laughs> uh, and yes, we know each other uh, because we're both, uh, I'm the student assistant and Tina is a part of the Netherlands Institute for Human Rights, SIM, which is also a part of Utrecht University which is where we have crossed paths so far. Recently, I got to, as student assistant, be part of a workshop on access to the right to health and racial discrimination in the enjoyment of the right to health, which Tina was a large part of uh, organizing. And that was so inspiring that um, here you are in the studio today. So thank you so much again for, for talking to me. And I want to ask you now, how did you come to care about the right to health and why is it important to you? Uh, well, within this context that we met, we were discussing, uh, you know, the um, current draft, uh, you know, in the committee, uh, CERD and, the, and Against Racial Discrimination, we prepare a, a general recommendation, which is a soft law tool uh, to provide guidance on how to protect uh, people protected, uh, you know, against racism in the enjoyment of the right to health. And so uh, in this context, uh, I am the rapporteur of the committee. I proposed the committee to uh, draft this general recommendation because, uh, you know, I joined the committee during COVID and uh, it was, uh, I mean, uh, it was very obvious uh, how the racism and racial discrimination affect negatively health. And actually, it also, it was also the first time that we had very concrete data that we could use to show not only, you know, um, uh, how we understood so far health, but to show how indirectly also racism affects the right to health. 
And that is CERD is the Committee uh, for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination at the United Nations, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was established, you know, also uh, provided by the treaty itself. Uh, so it was, uh, let's say, the first uh, treaty adopted while the two covenants uh, were uh, still being drafted. And so the committee is the one established by the treaty to monitor the implementation by the state parties. Right. And to start to go a little bit more in depth into this right, can you tell us uh, how and where is the right to health defined and what does it sort of generally entail? Yes, you know, the most, uh, let's say, the uh, main instrument that we all use to understand and interpret the right to health is the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. We, are, we also have instruments in, the, in Europe uh, under the auspices of Council of Europe, but let's say that the beacon uh, instrument is the International Covenant and uh, uh, also general comment um, uh, 14, uh, which is the first... In, first text where the committee interpreted the right to health and it helps us since then it has been you know really a milestone in understanding better the right to health both for uh, lawyers but also uh, you know a little bit reflecting how uh, health professionals understand it i see and how so we know where it's defined what what does good enjoyment of a right to health look like how is it laid down in the um, instruments. One of the, you know, uh, the right to health as other, uh, you know, social uh, economic rights and cultural rights, uh, they suffered, as I say, uh, from misconceptions. Uh, one of them is that, uh, you know, most of people think that the right to health is only right to health care, which is, of course, a right. very important component and very important <laughs> already, you know, right. But the right to health is what we call um, a more comprehensive right and all inclusive right which has first of all you know more dimensions it's uh, um, apart from the healthcare it has an autonomy dimension and also a prevention dimension so um, it's much more than it's first of all you know prevention which means that you need uh, you need to uh, have access to a system that uh, pr provides for basic preventive measures but also you have to have sufficient uh, rights and information and other components and other elements to be able to decide for your own health and um, be protected against, uh, to, to, you know, to be control of your own body. And this prevention, can you say what that is? That is that related to getting sick or how can we interpret that? Yes, it is, uh, you know, in general, uh, let's say that there are some specific, some core elements of the right to health and among them it's having a public health system that takes note of um, preventable risks of diseases and uh, provides for a system that provides for, uh, you know, access to uh, medicine, to essential medicine. And uh, so that's how someone, you know, in, you cannot just have access to healthcare without uh, having in advance this understanding of what you need in a public health, in a health system. I understand. And can you also shed some more lights on what autonomy means in the definition. You said something about 
bodily autonomy as well? Yes, autonomy is about, you know, first of all, uh, that you have uh, enough, uh, it's very important to have enough information on what's happening and what exactly on uh, your on your health, on the treatments and uh, uh, on the decisions that you have to make on your body. So uh, it has to do with uh, the consent you give only to, 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 you know, to medicine, goods, services, treatments, but also that you, you know, when uh, um, uh, there are specific treatments or specific interventions that you uh, actually you are the person who decides for your own body and these are many many situations and conditions that affect you know this autonomy it's not only access to information as we said which is I think a common issue a common challenge but especially for some groups challenges are far more important I uh, think for instance deten- detainees and uh, people in prisons they do not have exactly the same autonomy to their health and it's far more complicated because they're uh, in a context that also sometimes you know of course exposes them to health risks and uh, other examples are you know very famous um, violations of human rights such as forced sterilization We know that in Europe uh, you had already many such cases found violations by the European Court of Human Rights and other bodies. And and so we know that in these cases, uh, women mostly have been uh, sterilized without even, you know, knowing that uh, was taking place in their body. That's horrible. And thank you for shedding light on that indeed. You mentioned already that the COVID-19 pandemic shed more light on racial dimensions in the enjoyment of the right to health as well. Can you explain to us how racial discrimination affects someone's right to health? Yes, uh, it affects it in many different ways, like it affects any other, you know, human right. So right. again, here, uh, you we're used to thinking, when we think about racism and racial discrimination, we think as if it was only an interpersonal issue. So we always think that this, let's say, uh, ill-minded or prejudiced or just ignorant health professional, uh, consciously or unconsciously due to prejudice and stereotypes, see a person and uh, they do not... They do not behave rightly to this person or they do not uh, exactly make their best to uh, treat them right. Uh, This, of course, unfortunately remains true in uh, in our days because people do remain, you know, um, subject to prejudice and stereotypes, but it's only a very, very limited part of the, you know, of the story. As in other cases, you have institutional racism due to all these unwritten rules, but also rules that do not reflect the reality of all components of the population. But also you have, you know, this indirect cases of discrimination where people subject to exposed to racism and racial discrimination are not, uh, first of all, you know, they, they face the structural barriers and uh, they do not have access to in the enjoyment of the right to health, but also their barriers are not taken into account when policies are designed and implemented, to put it simply. So, but it's also apart from that, racism itself is a separate uh, determinant. WHO, the Health Organization, Organization has identified racism in terms of, uh, you know, call it as ethnicity, as a determinant of health. But although we know, we know so for so many years and we had so many studies, it has been under research and explored until COVID or the last 10, day, 10 years how exactly it affects health. 
So uh, apart from this, from a structural, it's also, you know, a separate health risk. Racism triggers the stress factor. And I think we know already a little bit about what, uh, you know, the role of stress in health. However, um, the stress triggered by racism, by hate speech, by hate crimes, by mild uh, but uh, daily forms of uh, racism and racial discrimination has not been sufficiently explored in, uh, I mean, in all areas of health because we have this tendency to overestimate uh, biological factors. I see. And if I understand you correctly, you mentioned that ethnicity is considered a factor in the enjoyment of the right to health by the World Health Organization? Yes, back then it was, you know, the the, the, uh, the term that the World Health Organization used to depict this relation because it's not only ethnicity, which is actually it's not ethnicity itself, it's racial discrimination. So right. it's not because, you know, uh, you have this kind of ethnicity or the other, but it's because uh, the structural, how you, you live your life, where you where you are born, where you live, where you work... Uh, along with very with other determinants such as gender such as education you know women face different kind of uh, risks and outcomes whether you live in rural areas or uh, in urban areas it it changes a lot the way your health is uh, determined interesting and and also these different determinants in how able you are to enjoy your right to health mm-hmm. can we say that these perhaps matter because of the way the healthcare system replies to these determinants so we see that people of certain ethnicities of certain genders are also treated differently in the healthcare system Yes, absolutely. That's a very good question because it starts very early. You know, uh, you have, for instance, the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights explained that the health should be available, accessible, adaptable and of certain quality. So uh, availability starts very early. So if you have a system of services, of goods, uh, of treatments that doesn't even respond to the risks a specific group of people undergo. So then it's not it's not available at all. And indeed it has to do with the infrastructure and how how exactly what exactly the system provides for for these groups. And so then also it has to do as we said with accessibility. So finally how not only if it's physically accessible but also if it's affordable, you know, how many people if these groups that are subject to racism are, uh, you know, um, in many, many, many cases, they actually also economically marginalized. So when you have systems that exclude them or do not provide for sufficient guarantees so that they have an affordable access to treatments, then it's almost an automatic effect. But also it's uh, culturally uh, and gender and responsive systems and due also to stereotypes, many of the you know, uh, these systems are not made to integrate, to welcome uh, these groups, these cultural groups. And uh, in many, many cases, they're even uh, not only excluded, but even criminalized. We see the role of midwives around the world coming from these groups and um, that actually are the main, let's say, health providers in the immediate uh, circle of this uh, of these women they're even criminalized they're not even of course they're not allowed in the system but also you know they are subject to severe punishment so it's uh, it's very difficult for people and uh, for persons let's take indigenous 
women, but not only indigenous women, women coming from various uh, groups. Indigenous women, they cannot just go to a hospital one day just to give birth to a child without having, I mean, you know, uh, although they have been in a way excluded beforehand from this system. And uh, unfortunately, we still see it with uh, Roma women Although, of course, they are admitted in maternity hospitals. On the other hand, we see in many countries that are kept quasi-segregated in wards of the hospital, and they're not, and they're also verbally abused. So this makes your, their experience quite hostile, and so of course uh, they don't trust the, the health providers, and they do not trust these health systems, a health system that it's not made for them. Interesting and fascinating and sad. Yeah. <laughs> so it's important Very that more, more attention is given to this. Can you explain a little bit more about the example you mentioned of midwives being criminalized? Where is this happening or what are we seeing? Yes, it happens because sometimes we think that these midwives, uh, it, you know, it, first of all, uh, around the world, they provide some services that are not considered by, let's say, uh, mainstream medicine as uh, important or or even as seen sometimes, you know, as uh, not exactly compliant with law. What we say in the committee, you know, you have to consult with communities. So you have to include, you know, to have a culturally responsive uh, system, then you need also to consult with the communities themselves because uh, women in these communities, they feel, you know, more safe with these midwives. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's, uh, I mean, uh, it's also very important because the way they bring, you know, for instance, in when you are in labor, the, the way they, they deliver the babies, it's very much different than, um, let's say, the mainstream way. And uh, first of all, please also remind it that women in general and persons with reproductive capacity, uh, in many, many cases, in many countries around the world, suffer from this very uh, different kind of very abusive ways, you know, uh, treatments and services and this has been established by you know human rights bodies um, so there is in 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 these cases especially you know these systems they, it's as if there's no space for these cultural rituals and so finally it amounts to obstetric violence uh, and you have to take into account also that in many cases this system is not made to provide information to these women so it's very difficult so that's why also it keeps these women uh, away but also in many many states also this kind of services has been reported to the committee also midwives coming from african descent communities they have been literally criminalized so not only they have been prosecuted and criminalized so it, it's as if there is needs to be a control around the right to health that uh, actually does not have space for uh, these women and it's only an example huh? You mentioned uh, a little while back, a few minutes ago, that racism itself can be a stress factor. Can you elaborate on this a little bit more? What does racism do and how does it affect people where it really affects their health? Yes, I, I'm always, you know, 
I have to say that I'm reluctant because uh, you know I'm not a health um, expert, and also I wouldn't uh, you know like to um, to say that any person subject to you know raci- racism and racial discrimination has this issue. Of course, every person. Um, I mean, you know, there are studies, but every person, of course, it has. They have their own setting of life and different kinds of uh, situation and coping mechanisms. And uh, so it's not uh, one way or, I mean, you know, it doesn't doesn't mean that all people, you know, react in the same way. However, there are studies already describing the, um, the effect of racism on mental health. Take it from the range of not feeling welcome to having to be afraid all the time. Uh, about, you know, when you see someone in uniform, uh, a law enforcement official, uh, I mean, these things have been uh, described. And we don't know so much about um, the, uh, you know, uh, in other kind of uh, groups, but it has been recently published the Lancet series on this issue made by a group of uh, health uh, professionals, uh, including doctors, and describing it was published in December 2022 and it describes how, I mean, it is the pattern of these things. So it has to do also take into account the fact that there are many of these, uh, many cases, many of these groups are also specially concentrated in specific areas, which actually are not uh, the most uh, served areas uh, by services. So they're underserved areas and um, also, I mean, in many cases, uh, they don't have the same opportunities to access to work. Uh, environmentally, also, there are hazardous, you know, conditions in these areas. So they they come across many different kinds of conditions that not only do not help them improve their well-being, but also they undermine their well-being uh, every day and by various ways. Thank you. And... Um Indeed, it's important to recognize that this is not the same for every person, and it won't be. But for the CERD committee, it's important to look into this as a separate health risk as well. You also mentioned at the start this more global public health emergency with COVID. And if I'm not mistaken, CERD is also looking into not just racism and racial discrimination as a separate health risk, but also related to these global challenges. Can you shed light on this? Yes, indeed. Although this is this is you know underexplored for the moment, because on the one hand, you know, you have this global challenge, and this global challenge, we just think that again, uh, the community, the international community, uh, will react as if everything was already ready, and you just uh, push a button, and you know, uh, emergency kit unfolds, and everything goes great. So we see, we saw that it's not the case. So even when, I mean, we show solidarity uh, it this solidarity was not enough to reach out to these communities and that's why we had so high numbers of morbidity and mortality uh, so this solidarity uh, which is also provided you know under international human rights law between states um, it has not proved to be sufficient in uh, during covid we saw uh, states uh, overstock for instance vaccines and, uh, numbers that were way 
more than the needs in terms of population, uh, which means that it's left uh, this kind of practices left outside um, many, many, many parts of the world. And uh, of course, does not promote any solidarity between um, people. So w- that's why also it's, it was part of the reasons, of course, uh, uh, African states did not have access to, you know, equal numbers of vaccines. And that's why they also lagged behind. So this is one thing. But also the way the states discuss about public health and, uh, you know, within WHO, World Health Organization, I mean, now, you know, they're preparing this uh, treaty on the emergencies and uh, this treaty, this, uh, it's not exactly clear how, if it will be a treaty or not. But uh, so, again, it's important, uh, I mean, that they recognize that without cooperation, these global challenges cannot be addressed effectively. Well said. And it's, it's a beautiful reference to international solidarity and cooperation. Do you think this is connected this lack of cooperation or solidarity is connected to structural forms of discrimination or what what is the part that needs to be improved to achieve this let's say that I think that, um, you know, uh, you have states that already um, participate in various ways in this international cooperation and solidarity scheme by development plans. And we do not, we have to also uh, give them credit for that. Uh, However, these plans, I mean, you know, because many, many, many around the world, global health uh, projects uh, take place thanks to this uh, international development aid and contributions by many states. However, I think it's, uh, first of all, we have to remember that um, sometimes even health professionals, they recognize that within the schemes, uh, racial discrimination is not taken into account. And uh, as a as an outcome, you have you know the same kind of paths perpetuating racial discrimination when the development aid is given to states. Uh, but also, on the other hand, we have to remember that um, Probably, you know, we need a different kind of mindset, how we discuss these issues, how we uh, negotiate with uh, business and pharmaceutical corporation on these issues. Um, How do we understand equality within, uh, but also among states? Because if you don't have more equality among states, then it's very difficult for many, many, many states around the world to combat inequalities within their own jurisdiction. I see. And would you say the United Nations right now and CERD is indeed committed to contacting the communities that are affected and being engaged in conversation with with the people who are affected? Do you think there's a genuine commitment for that? First of all, I mean, you know, um, the participation of the communities, it's very interesting that uh, even the convention, an old text adopted in 65, recognized that it was the only way forward. That because, you know, you cannot have different and segregated communities and states must uh, integrate and promote uh, interracial, interracial movements. That's how, I mean, you know, more or less they, it calls it. Uh, so... Um, 
the committee has already, you know, uh, integrated in the um, in the procedures uh, the voice of these communities. And if you see even in the dialogues with the states, the committee asks questions based on reliable information, credible information coming from these communities. And so the uh, many, many, finally, the concluding observations and the things that we discussed, the recommendations given by the committee, rely on this information. So, yes, in general, if you ask me, uh, the international human rights law has certainly strengthened, you know, the visibility of these communities, not only by standard setting, you know, by treaties that actually examine, you know, the uh, protect the rights, but also through specific processes, also on the international level. However, we have to be very careful because we, I mean, representativity, it's not always so simple. We have to make sure that within these communities, all voices are heard. So not only, you know, uh, the, let's say, usual leaders of the community, but also we have to have, you know, gender representativity, age representativity. There are so many issues, especially, you know, very important for any right, even more so for the right to health. So we have to make sure that, you know, our interlocutors are well representative. It's a, a great way to look at it, indeed. Human rights law is bringing us forward, but there are important things to, to look out for as well. Maybe for me and the listeners, you can elaborate on the third draft recommendation and how it aims to combat the issue of racial discrimination in the enjoyment of the right to health. Yes, first of all, it does what we uh, I also touched upon earlier. So it goes beyond uh, this only understanding of access to health as an access to health care. And uh, of course, uh, it was not clearly stated, but we always had in mind that, uh, you know, racial discrimination affects this aspect of right. The draft adopts a more sophisticated uh, understanding of the right to health, providing, you know, for uh, this basic uh, statement that uh, the right to health starts much earlier uh, while designing and, uh, you know, the public health policy. Uh, Then it's about, you know, I mean, um, the the draft tries to show uh, what we discussed, how the right to health, how racial discrimination affects the availability, accessibility, adaptability and the quality of the right to health. And I think the only element that we didn't discuss is quality. It's almost incredible, but health providers just, you know, also acknowledge how um, the fact that they do not include these communities in their testing, for instance, the quality of medicine is also questioned in terms of racial discrimination because for structural reasons, they do not include people from this community, so they do not exactly how this, for instance, any specific medicine will react on these cases, but also the way they, they are taught, you know, in medicine and the way they understand, and sometimes they just convey from generation to generation specific assumptions. So the quality of health is under question. How exactly, you know, the treatments, how exactly their practices, they are well suited for um, these communities and how well they question the effect of racial discrimination. Uh, then the, the draft also builds upon, you know, very, let's say, um, the system of obligations provided by the CERT. So it's about, you know, negative and positive obligations. So it's not only about refraining from, uh, you know, racism and racial discrimination, uh, which means that the state 
uh, as such, should refrain from discriminatory practices, but also it's about protecting in uh, cases where health is provided by private uh, actors. And uh, it's also about fulfilling, so providing for a health system that acknowledges all components of the population, takes due account of their um, conditions and tries to provide for, you know, uh, the right to health as best as possible for all all the population and, you know, including people subject to racial discrimination. Wonderful. Thank you for for elaborating on what the United Nations is working on right now. Um, It is to be hoped that all of this will be implemented and indeed improve the access to the right to health. Thank you for for talking to me about this. It's been incredibly interesting and I assume it will be new for a lot of our listeners and perhaps for those who already know about it more in depth. Uh, So thank you so much, Tina. And I have a final question for you, which I like to ask everybody, which is, who is someone you look up to in the field of human rights and why? Thank you so much for this question. And thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, you know, there are so many personalities, important personalities um, that have done so much and, you know, uh, important scholars that change the way we think about human rights and uh, in particular about, you know, equality. But uh, I have to say that I probably uh, romantically, I'm always, you know, thinking when, you know, in my, let's say, in my darkest moments, I always think about human rights defenders that I met everywhere around the world and how uh, I think that without them, human rights would have not been the same uh, because uh, they don't expect anything. They just, you know, are there to promote and protect human rights. They support people um, with their own energy, resources, and in many various ways. And uh, I think that they, I find them very inspiring. And I always thinking about them when I feel that things do not move fast enough. And they just taught me how to be more patient and how to remain, you know, resilient. That's an amazing answer. Yeah. It's truly a a shout out to those who are really putting it all on the line for human rights. So thank you again, Tina, for coming to the studio. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Linz. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Talking Human Rights. It was very interesting, and I hope you agree. If you have any comments, please let us know through the social media. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your network, your friends, your family, your cousin who is interested in a career in human rights, or whoever else. Um, And thank you, and I hope this has inspired you in talking human rights. (laughs) 